Who did God create me to be? What did God create me to do? Where did God create me to go? That's what this series is all about. There are answers to those three questions that are true for all of us. For every one of us who are here, there's an answer that's the same for each of us. Who did God create me to be? What did God create me to do? Where did God create me to go? That's called, the, the answers that are the same are called our common calling, our common purpose. Uh, there are answers that are specific for us as well, that, that are unique for each one of us. As we gathered to pray this morning before the service started, one of the guys, uh, I was asking those questions, the guy says, man, I'm just weird. I'm different than everybody else. And we said, you know what? That's in week five. That's a few weeks away. We're going to get there. But today, we're talking about that, that question that starts it all. Who did God create me to be? With an answer that's true for all of us. The 1960s and 70s were uh, an interesting time in our country's history. If you were alive back then, you remember that there was this tension that existed called the Cold War. It started with Sputnik, with Yuri Gagarin going into space, John Glenn going up later, orbiting the Earth as the first American. The space race was a key part of the Cold War. But then there was the arms race too. Uh, if you were alive at that point in time, there was always this sense of tension. Uh, is there going to be nuclear war? Is the United States going to drop nukes on Russia, on the Soviets? On the Soviets going to drop nukes on the U.S.? Is, it just, is the world going to blow up? It was a crazy thing. It was a crazy time. There was also this tension that existed between the Soviets and the U.S. in athletics. If you remember, the, uh, there, there was always, in the Olympics, there was always this deal that would happen between the U.S. and the Soviets. Uh, you know, a U.S. skater would do great, and the, the scores would come out, and it would be like 8.5, 8.5, 9.0, and a 6 from the Soviets, right? It, it, it happened both ways. It was, there, there was this tension that exist, existed. I remember as a kid in 1972 watching the gold medal game of the Olympics, of the Summer Olympics in basketball, between the Soviets and the United States. States. Some of you remember this. Uh, the, Soviets, the Soviet team was employed by the government, and so they were technically amateurs and could play in the Olympics at that point in time. But the U.S. team had a pro league, the NBA, and the pros couldn't play in the Olympics. Only the college students could. In 1972, the United States had, had won every basketball gold since uh, uh, basketball had become an Olympic sport. And in 1972, the Soviets took the lead from the first basket of the game. They're ahead the entire game, and with about four minutes left in the game, the United States goes on a run and gets within one point. Uh, Doug Collins steals a pass, goes the length of the court, and a Soviet player undercuts him as he goes up for a layup. He misses the layup, hits his head on the backboard, and is knocked out on the court. They call a foul. Doug Collins is, is knocked out, but the coach says if Collins can walk, he's going to shoot the free throws. Collins goes to the, goes to the free throw line and sinks two free throws for the United States to go ahead for the first time in the game, 50-49 to 49 with three seconds left. The Soviets throw the ball in the court as soon as Collins makes that, that second free throw shot, dribble up the right side of the court, and uh, time expires on the clock, and the refs call, they blow their whistle and call a timeout. Said no, he wasn't supposed to throw the ball in. The Soviets get the ball at the, at the end line again. If you remember, it was like, wait, the United States won. 
Soviets take the ball at the end line, throw it the length of the court. It goes off the hands of a Soviet player, out of bounds as the buzzer goes off, and the, and the crowd goes crazy. The United States has won the gold medal in 1972 in basketball. The court gets stormed. The crowd goes crazy. The United States players are just going crazy. And the refs clear the court and say, no, the game's not done yet. Put three seconds back on the clock. Back on the clock. Soviets get the ball at the end line, throw it the length of the court. A Soviet player catches the pass, puts the ball in the basket as the buzzer goes off and time expires, and the Soviets win the gold for the first time. United, that, that, that tension that existed between the United States and Soviets, it was there on all fronts. Eight years later in the Olympics, 1980, the Winter Olympics, many of you remember what happened. In the, in the medal round, um, the United States is scheduled to play the Russians. The Russians are the best hockey players in the world. Again, the Russian team um, is employed by the state, so they're technically amateurs, even though they have played together for 10 or 15 years, grown men. And Herb Brooks is chosen as the American coach to bring together a collection of college players to fight the Soviets, to play against the Soviets. If you remember the movie Miracle, it tells the story of that season. Brooks brings together the players, the U.S. players, and, um, and through the process asks them to introduce themselves to each other because they come from all over the country. The players would say their name, their hometown, and what college they played for. As Brooks brought them together, narrowed the team down, they began to play exhibition games. And in one particular exhibition game, they played Norway in Oslo. The United States and Norway skated to a 3-3 three to three tie. But the U.S. players were kind of distracted by the Scandinavian women in the stands. Their, game, their focus wasn't entirely on the game. And they skated to a 3-3 tie against a team that they, should have, that they should have beaten pretty easily. If you remember the movie in particular... Brooks, after that game, says, if you won't work during the game, we'll work after it. And brings the players down to the end line and begins this process of having them skate from line to line, line to line, line to line, until they're physically exhausted. It continues. Um, historically, it, that practice continued into the night for hours until the stadium lights, the arena lights, were turned off. In the midst of that, Brooks says this to his players, you think you can win on talent alone? You don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. When you put on that jersey, you represent yourself as well as your teammates, and the name on the front is a lot more important than the name on the back. He said, this game, this cannot be a game of common men because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. Again, if you remember the movie, it's incredible as Brooks skates the men nearly to death. They're fatigued, exhausted. They're vomiting on the ice. They're, they can't stand up. And finally, it has gone on literally for hours. When they filmed this particular scene, they filmed it for three days in a row so that the players would feel the exhaustion that that hockey team felt in reality in 1980. Finally, in the film... One player shouts out, barely audible, Mike Arruzzioni, Winthrop Mass. And Brooks looks at him and says, who do you play for? And Arruzzioni says, the United States of America. And Brooks says, that'll be all, gentlemen, and walks off the ice. 
Most of you know the end to that story. The game that would take a miracle for the United States to win and did. What was Brooks asking for from his players? He was asking for the United States hockey team to recognize who they were in their core identity. Not who they played for in college, not what their name was, not what city they were from, but the fact that they were hockey players for the United States of America. So the question for us today is, what is our core identity? What, why did God create us? Who did God create us to be? Why are we here? It's not for self-actualization. It's not for self-realization. It's not for self-preservation. It's not for self-anything. Our core identity, the core identity of every man, woman, and child in the United States in Ecuador, in Papua New Guinea, in the Soviet Union, in Ukraine, in China, in Antarctica, in, Michi- in mid-Michigan, is the same. What is your core identity? Who did God create me to be? In ninth grade, I, I struggled like everyone else to try and figure out where I fit in. I was an athlete and, and pretty, uh, uh, pretty proficient at that. I sang in the choir and was president of the choir, president of my class. But I struggled to say, where do I fit in this culture? Who do I want to be? I can remember making a decision sometime in my ninth grade year to, th- to think, I want to be like everybody else. And I began to act like others. I began to treat people, treat the people who weren't popular the way that the other popular people treated them. I began to not have time for people. I began to say things, have words come out of my mouth that, that had, had never um, come out of my mouth before. And I remember in one day in particular, one day in particular, I said something in a way that I had never said it before. And as the words hung in the air of the hallway of my junior high, I thought, Is this who I want to be? Is this who I am? Who did God create us to be? It's a question for us today. Am I an American who follows Jesus? Or am I a follower of Jesus who happens to live in the United States? Am I a person filled with grace who happens to have a lot of stuff? Or am I an owner of lots of stuff who occasionally extends grace to others? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a person who's moving towards a life fully devoted to Jesus, your core identity is to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What's it look like to be a disciple? When, when, when Jesus stood on the shore of Galilee and said to the twelve, Come, follow me. What was he asking? He was asking them to forsake their jobs, their families, to leave everything to follow him, to give their lives to him completely. That's what it meant to be a disciple. And they did. What's it look like? Where does it start? I think that it starts with an understanding that you and I are a child of God. John wrote these words in his first letter. 
See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Disciples of Jesus are children of God. Not just any child. God hasn't called us to just be any child, but a child of God. One of the things that I think is most incredible in this life is seeing a newborn child. Uh, maybe you've experienced that as a, as a pastor. I get oftentimes to go to a hospital and see a family, a mom and dad, when they've just had a newborn baby. It's the coolest thing in the world to see their family around them and to see people react to this couple with this newborn child. They say, oh man, that, that baby, he, he looks just like his dad. That, that baby, she looks just like her mom. It's the most incredible thing in the world. They're so beautiful. And I stand on the sidelines, and in my mind, i got to tell you, in my mind and in my heart, I think, they're not that beautiful. You know? A baby looks like a baby looks like a baby. They have big heads. They're all wrinkly. They all kind of look the same. And actually, I think they look like Winston Churchill. Uh, you know? Really. Every child looks like Winston Churchill, right? You know what I mean? It's there. But when my child was born, and I called them by name, Leah Marie Rubel, Anna Elizabeth Rubel, Holly Lynn Rubel, Gabrielle Joy Rubel, Robert Josiah Rubel, Micah Richard Rubel, they didn't look at all like Winston Churchill. They were my child. They were the child that had grown up, formed in my wife's womb. They were the child that I had planned for and anticipated and celebrated. And just like we anticipate the birth of our child, we have the ultrasound, we prepare the nursery, we buy the car seat, we do all that stuff. From the moment of conception and even before, God has been preparing for us. He has known us. The psalmist says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame wasn't hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. A disciple of Jesus is a child of God. A child has a name, a position, a status, before they can do anything. Baby Rubel, when that was on that placard in the nursery, distinguished my child from every other child in the nursery. Baby Rubel, from the moment um, he or she is born, is full heir to the Rubel fortune. Baby Rubel is born into a family. They share a heritage. They share a future. Listen to me. You may not feel like a child of God today. 
you may have walked away from him, but that hasn't changed your core identity. You know what? It doesn't matter how you feel. If you're living on the streets or in a mansion, if you're climbing a mountain or crossing a desert, if you're in a sanctuary or a saloon, your DNA never changes. It doesn't matter if you're playing games or if you're going to school. It doesn't matter if you're addicted or in jail, if you're abused or if you're confused. Your, your DNA is identical to the time when you were first born. Your core identity, my core identity, is that we are children of God. The only issue is whether or not we believe that child of God DNA in us is real. A disciple of Jesus is a child of God because a disciple of Jesus is chosen by God. Do you understand that God has chosen us to be his children? 1 Peter 2 says, you are a royal priesthood, a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, not a person, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. God has chosen us, and that makes us incredibly valuable. You understand that when we're chosen, that means that we're not rejected. The opposite of chosen is rejected, and we understand rejected, don't we? I may have told this story before, but it's, it's too good not to use again. In junior high, I had a girlfriend named Terry Strong. Terry was cute. She was a cheerleader. Uh, I, on the scale of life in junior high, having a cheerleader for a girlfriend at a big school is a big deal. We were boyfriend and girlfriend, which basically meant that we hung out together. Um, we held hands sometimes. We sat together at lunch. We passed notes when we could get away with it in class. Um, it was the best. She had chosen me and I had chosen her. We were going to be together forever, Right? I remember so clearly this one morning at the junior high. It was in between classes. Terry passed me a note and I was anxious to open it. I was standing by my locker right next to Mike Patrick's locker. Right down the hallway was the art room. At the, uh, just a few doors away was the biology room. And as I opened this note, I could hear the music swell in my head. And it said, Dear Rick, I like you best of all. Except Jeff Miller. <laughs> Love, Terry. L-U-V, Terry. I like you best of all. Except Jeff Miller. Words can't really describe the damage you feel when you're rejected in junior high. There's not much worse than being rejected in junior high. Unless it's being rejected when you're a child. Or being rejected when you're an adult. Some of you understand rejection all too well. It's become a companion in your life that you can't shake no matter what you do. You're rejected at school. You're rejected by the opposite sex. Maybe you've been rejected by a college 
Maybe you've been rejected for a job. Somebody else got the promotion, the, the role that you wanted. Maybe you've been rejected for a loan. Maybe you've been rejected by your parents. Or maybe, parents, you've been rejected by your children. Some of you have gone through maybe the ultimate rejection, being rejected by your spouse. You're the person on the outside of the conversation. The person that when you walk up, the conversation just kind of stops and everybody walks away. You understand rejection. One of the movies nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards this past year was the movie Lion, which tells the story of the book A Long Way Home and tells the story of a man named Saru Brierly, a boy in India separated from his mother when he was five years old in 1986. Saru falls asleep on a train and wakes up nearly a thousand miles from home with no idea where he is or how he got there. No idea how to get home. He survives on the street of Calcutta for a short time before eventually being adopted by a family in Australia named Briarly. A year later, the Briarleys adopt another child from India who was also abandoned and has experienced severe emotional trauma that left lasting scars on his life. As an adult, Saru becomes obsessed with discovering his true identity and finding his birth family. The task, though, is too difficult. The trail too cold. It's been over 20 years. And Saru becomes down, he becomes depressed and sullen, withdrawn and hopeless. In one scene of the movie, Saru is talking to his adopted mom and says, I'm sorry you couldn't have your own kids. She responds and says, What are you saying? Saru says, We we weren't blank pages, were we? Like your own child would have been. You weren't just adopting us, but you were but our past as well. I feel like we're killing you. Sue says, As she gazes out the window, I could have had kids. Saru says, what? Sue says, we chose not to have kids. We wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. That's what we chose. Do you understand that that's the story of God's love for us? God chose us to be his sons and daughters. He chose us before we were born. But then he saw us in our mess as we walked away from him. In our worst time imaginable, God looked down on us and said, I choose you. You are a masterpiece, a work of art created from the beginning of time. Paul writes and says, we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The answer to the question, who am I created to be, is a simple one. one. We're created to be a disciple of Jesus, a child of God who has been chosen twice. 
before birth and again in our deepest despair because of Jesus. Jesus, as he chose the disciples, said, come follow me. And they responded. Becoming this disciple means accepting the core identity that God has given us. It means accepting, recognizing that God has created us for a purpose. And that identity that he designed in us before we were born is waiting to be discovered. What is that? You understand that the identity, the DNA that God has given us is that we're a new creation. 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Paul writes and says, we're, we're not slaves to sin as, uh, as a child of God in our core identity. We're not slaves to sin. We don't have to live that path. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You understand, if, if, if as you live today, you have this sense, I can't get away from the things that tend to destroy me. Our identity in Christ is that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed to become slaves to God, to make Jesus Lord of our life. Just a few verses later in the same chapter, Paul writes, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't get what, how righteousness fit. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. Now that you've been set free from sin, you're free to have this relationship with God that changes everything because Jesus lives in us. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer who I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith by, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who am I created to be? I'm created to be a disciple of Jesus. Hear this. God did not create you to simply believe in Jesus. For many who are here, you would say, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is God's son. God did not create you to simply believe. James writes and says, you believe that God is one? That's great. The demons also believe and they tremble at the reality of that fact. God didn't just create you to believe. God didn't just create you to have a Christian worldview. To see things through a Christian lens. God didn't create you to live a comfortable life and say, oh, we have the blessings of God here. And to go through those motions. God created you to be a disciple of Jesus. Someone who follows Jesus wherever he leads. Someone who patterns themselves after the mentor, Jesus. Someone who answers yes to God's call even when you don't understand. The root word for the word disciple is the same root as the word discipline. It's, it signifies this commitment, this passion, this drive, this control of our circumstances to be a disciple. The disciples left everything to follow Jesus. And that is our common identity, our common calling. Blaise Pascal said, not only do we know God by Jesus Christ alone, but we know ourselves only 
by Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, we do not know what is our life, nor what is our death, nor God, nor ourselves. You know, in that scene in the miracle where Herb Brooks is having the players skate over and over and over again to help them understand their core identity, he says, you think you can win on talent alone? You don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. When I watched that scene again this week, I thought, those words are true for us as followers of Jesus. Modify just a little bit. You think that you can know God on goodness alone? You don't have enough goodness to know God based on your goodness. We tend to see our goodness as the cake that we give to God and that, that covering the cake is this icing that's the grace of God. We think, you know what, our, our cake's pretty good and God will take our cake as we give it to him. But the grace, the grace is the icing on the cake. The grace is the thing that makes us, oh, that, that looks great to God. Do you understand that our cake that we could give God is nothing more than moldy and dry crumbs? And that God's grace is the entire cake, not just the icing. It's only through Jesus can we have that relationship with God. Can we find that identity in him? Brooks said, when you put your name on that jersey, when, when you put on that jersey, you represent yourself as well as your teammates. The name on the front, USA, is a lot more important than the name on the back. Hear those words to you this morning. When you put the name Christian on yourself, you represent God and his kingdom. You represent his church as well as yourself. And the name of God is much more important than your name personally, than your name as an American, than your name even as a part of North Point. Brooks said, this cannot be a game of common men or common women because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. Our lives cannot be those of common men and women. Common men and women go nowhere. Our lives have to be uncommon. This week at Exponential, I was kind of processing stuff as I was listening to lots of teaching in the conference. And at one point, I remember thinking... Why is it so important to me, this vision that we have of impacting 50,000 people in the next five years with the grace of Jesus, why is that so important to me? Why is it so important to me to impact people with the grace of Jesus? I, I chewed on that for a long time because that's the vision that, that, that God has given. And here's, here's what I've come to. The vision of impacting people with the grace of of Jesus is so important because so many of us live our lives, our, our lives as Christians in isolation. We live it from Sunday to Sunday and it doesn't impact the rest of our world. If we're to impact people with the grace of Jesus, it has to happen individually on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. It has to be the thing that drives our thoughts and our hearts over and over again. The grace of Jesus, impacting people with the grace of Jesus is important because we need to express that. And it's also important because we live in a world that's, that, that is full of people who don't know the grace of Jesus, who don't know their core identity, 
who don't know what it means to follow Jesus and to experience forgiveness and love that changes and transforms us. I want to f- finish today with a, with a very clear invitation. It's something that I haven't done in this way uh, probably in a long time here at North Point, and I feel like it's really important as we talk about our core identity. I want to challenge you if you've been going through the motions today to make a decision, what that decision involves is accepting the reality that our core identity is to be a disciple of Jesus. That God created us to be in relationship with him. God created us to know him through Jesus. You've got to believe that and accept that today. You've got to take a step of faith to receive that. You've got, as scripture teaches, you've got to take the step to repent of the life that you've been living, to change the direction of your life, to say, you know what, my heart has been all about me and I've got to make it about God. I've got to stop living in a way that distances me from God, that separates me from him. I've got to repent. I've got to change the way I'm living. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to tell God, God, you know what? I am a mess. I've been trying to do it on my own and I can't and I need you. I need Jesus. You need to confess Jesus to people around you. Say, I choose today to follow him. You need to be baptized. You need to take that step. Understand that baptism is a big deal. Jesus was baptized. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the first message that said to the masses, do you understand that Jesus was God's son and that he died for you? The people said, what do we do? And Peter said, repent, be baptized. And 3,000 people that day were baptized. Cornelius, the first non-Jewish follower of Jesus, when he received the grace of God, was baptized. The Philippian jailer, the night that he experienced the transformative power of Jesus, was baptized. The Ethiopian treasurer, as he, as he studied scripture, said, there's water. What keeps me from being baptized? He was baptized. Saul, the guy who persecuted the church, who put to death Christians, was baptized. If you are far from God, if you don't understand your core identity, if you don't know what it means to follow Jesus... We're going to sing in just a couple of minutes. And I want to invite you to take a stand. I want to invite you to come down to where I am here on the front row. And I would love to talk with you and introduce you to him. And help you understand and embrace that core identity. Let's pray. God, we know that this issue that we're talking about right now is a critical one for all eternity. It's critical for us. It's critical for those of us who have been going through the motions. God, it's critical for us who have been maybe wearing the jersey but not living it. God, I ask today that you would help us embrace that we are made to be disciples of Jesus. 
children that you have created, that you have chosen to be in relationship with. In Jesus' name, I pray. You know what? If you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to come down this morning. And let's take care of that. If you do, if you do understand that core identity, be praying. Be praying for people who need to make decisions today. Let's stand together. Let's sing.